Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Jolly. Coming up on today's episode, as political parties hit the road ahead of the elections on Thursday, all taking part in increasingly silly stunts to catch the photographer's eye, we count down the best and worst political photo ops ever, including speaking to some of the people who were behind them. But first, as ever, we kick off with our columnist panel. It's Monday, so it must be Libby Rachie, Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester. talk about rules and whether or not they matter in politics. Let's not get bogged down in the ins and outs of flats because people get cross if we do that too much. But over the weekend, uh, the Scottish Conservative leader, Douglas Ross, said that if Boris Johnson is found to have broken the ministerial code on any of the things that he may or may not go up to, he would have to resign. However, we have seen in recent times, you know, um, uh, Priti Patel was found to have broken the ministerial code but was allowed to stay because she didn't know that she was bullying people uh, and that sort of thing. Does it matter? What's the point of the ministerial code, uh, Libby, if there are no repercussions for breaking it? I think we have to have it. Of course, it matters. And I can see the problem for all these Conservative Party MPs and members. You can't be seen to shrug it off and pretend that uh, small peccadilloes don't matter, because in the end, they will actually snowball into real corruption. But I do actually think, I know you don't want to talk about wallpaper, <laughs> but in this case, it is just infuriating because... It's tempting to say, you know, there's this chaotic situation that the Prime Minister's been in. He's been ill and a new baby and a new fiancé. And it's tempting to say, for God's sake, this is wasting a lot of time and energy. He's paid up. It's a public building. In the long run, he'll get nothing for it. Whoever succeeds him will have to live with the absolutely ghastly nouveau naff, <laughs> Lulu little nonsense that they've bunged in. I don't care. Uh, so I, I think it's very difficult. You have to guess what is a peccadillo and what is something which could snowball. In this case, it feels like a peccadillo to me. What do you think, Rachel? Well, I 
th on the point about rules, I do think the rules matter. And what we're seeing is the sort of system depends really on, you know, that old Peter Hennessy thing about the good chap theory that <laughs> prime ministers are in charge of policing the system and the ministerial code because prime ministers appoint ministers. But that really depends on having a prime minister who does take the view that the rules matter, that if his ethics advisor says somebody needs to go, uh, they ha he has to take that seriously or she has to take that seriously. Um, and Boris Johnson just isn't like that. He doesn't think the rules apply to him. And he's been like that for ever and a day in his private life and in his public life. But I think when it comes to the ministerial code, it really does matter. Um, and I, the, there's a really interesting test case coming up because the civil service union, the FDA, is taking, they've got a um, permission to bring a judicial review against the Priti Patel ruling on exactly this point where they're saying, hang on a minute, why should civil servants have to abide by one set of rules and ministers be mm. exempt? Um, so the the thing is, the big picture is that the you know the the system depends on prime ministers behaving decently and having a sort of good chap approach to life. Um, and I think at the moment we've got a prime minister who doesn't really behave like that, and that's the issue. So it's how you get around that without a sort of more um, legal framework. It's quite hard to see how you do. The point is that if you, if one side thinks they're not going to abide by the rules anymore, it makes it very difficult for them to insist that others do. And part of the reason why Douglas Ross, the Scottish Tory leader, has had to say that Boris Johnson would have to resign is that he was very keen on the idea that Nicola Sturgeon would have to resign if she'd been found to have broken the ministerial code in Scotland. So it, to some extent, if you want to be able to attack your, your, your rivals, then you, you need to sign up to the rules yourself, Libby. Mm. That's absolutely absolutely right. Yes, and I think that, but I think that some of the other breaches and potential breaches, like the Pretty Patel one, uh, matter actually more than the current Boris one. And I think the generic thing also that that bothers me as well. So, but it is it is just very difficult that all this has come down to this sort of sitcom nonsense, you know, about <laughs> uh, about an extravagant an extravagant fiance wanting gold wallpaper, and and it, it's it's a distraction. I mean, the other things matter more, and they're not talked about nearly as much. <laughs> but isn't the point that if so, we don't know yet whether the ethics advisor is going to say that the ministerial code has been breached. Possibly, you know, he'll he'll come up with some sort of careful wording that doesn't conclude that we don't know but if my point is just that if he if the ministerial code is declared to have been breached by a sort of actual ethics advisor then that has to be taken seriously um so that's sort yeah. of not really to do with wallpaper it's to do with the principle and the integrity of the system yeah absolutely right absolutely right um, let's move on Libby, and talk about your column today um you've touched on the, the, the <laughs> this this noel clark uh Situation is obviously the actor. He was given a, 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 an award by BAFTA despite being uh, told uh, privately, um, anonymously in some cases, about his behaviour. And since then, it's all it's all kicked off. Some women came forward. Twenty women came forward to the Guardian. Uh, he's been dropped by uh, BAFTA. His agent, um, TV shows he's been in have been pulled. Um, but I, well, I, I, I detect from the noise that you just made, have you already had quite a reaction to your column today? Uh, not enormously, thanks to the uh, gallant Times moderators who, who go through all this stuff. But I, I just wanted to poke this particular hornet's nest because sexual arrogance on one side, mob media justice on the other. Um, I thought that BAFTA behaved ridiculously in carrying on when they were suspicious and then panicking over a newspaper report, making everything worse than it was in the first place. But the wider thing I wanted to say is, look, we're having a cultural shift because of Me Too and Time's Up and all the recent cases. Everyone knows it's absolutely top 
to be accused of sexual misbehaviour, even if there's been no criminal trial and no civil case, and that it ruins people. You know, think of Kevin Spacey. Uh, and so that is now a weapon. It's a weapon in the hands of victims. If networks and managers just pull themselves together from their dazed incompetence about famous golden geese and create proper safe routes for complaint, which can be anonymous and not lose women their jobs, then sharp warnings can be given early. And it's kind of part of everyone's role to speak up early. If somebody had taken on Noel Clark from below and from above early on and saying, look, you can't carry on like this, you can't make sexual jibes at women, you know, just be a bit more respectful, grow up, then we wouldn't have lost what is probably quite a big talent. And we've lost a lot of big talents and we're going to lose more of them. If this goes on, this, this sort of hopeless anonymity. It, it, the only conclusion I really make in the thing is that basically the networks are both managerially incompetent in not creating proper HR rules for complaint and they're absolute arrant cowards when they start to be found out uh, by the Guardian for not having taken action. So it's, it, it's a, a showbiz show trials don't help and I think the whole thing there's responsibility on both sides and it, it needs to be looked at more levelly. Uh, what do you think, Rachel? Because it is one of those things where everyone now rushes out with its TV companies or agents and so on to, to condemn Noel Clark. But presumably, it's, given how widespread the issue of his behaviour seems to have been, it's not like everyone was completely in the dark about this. No, I think where I agree with Libby is that I, th I just don't understand why BAFTA didn't take seriously these allegations before they gave the award. What seems to have been sort of the pendulum swinging from ignoring it to then rushing to judgment too late. Um, but where I think I slightly differ with Libby is that I do think that we have to recognise it's incredibly good and strong and powerful that now women are coming out and saying this and that the culture that's developed um, you know, with all this sort of filming naked auditions and all that kind of thing, it just seems totally unacceptable. And so it's really good that people are calling that out. And that mustn't be belittled. Um, and, and it does take bravery to do that, I think, even many years on. But I, I would agree that there needs to be a sort of, it needs to be nipped in the bud right now and, you know, at the time rather than it being too retrospective. But if it is being dealt with retrospectively, then that's surely a good thing. It's better, better, better late I think than if never. We, I but... think if women, yeah. if, if women can now understand that it is probably A, safer and B, far more effective to nip it in the bud early and fast, then we would not be, you know, we would not have these terrible sort of retrospective witch hunts. I am quite tired of women being told they're incredibly brave for speaking out, you know, 10 years later or whatever. I don't find that incredibly brave at all. But I think women would now speak out much more immediately. There was a, I think there was a sort of culture of secrecy, certainly in Hollywood, that you think about how long it took and how powerful somebody like Harvey Weinstein was. Uh, and it was mm, difficult oh yeah. to take that on. And it was brave. Was... And it did take years. And a sort of journalist really spending a long time building that case and talking to lots and lots of people to substantiate the allegations. Uh, so I think power does have a silencing and oppressive effect uh, and the power imbalance had got completely out of kilter over many years and it's good if that's now being redressed. That's Libby Post and Rachel Sylvester there. Of course, you can read them both in The Times every week. Just go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, the best and worst political photo ops ever. 
One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. You're listening to the Red Box podcast. Now, say cheese. Yeah, it's election day, local election day, Scottish elections, Welsh elections, all happening this Thursday. So loads of politicians are going to be out and about doing their best and possibly worst photo opportunities. So we thought this was a good excuse to take a look at the best ever political photo stunts. The World Cup of political photo stunts has entered its semi-final right now online. You can vote. It's the Edstone versus Train Gates. Jeremy Corbyn sitting on the floor of a train. Uh, uh, that's in semi-final one. In semi-final two, it's an all-food affair. It's Alex Salmon feeding a Solero to a young woman. And Change UK eating at a Nando's. Can Change UK win? Could it be the first thing that Change UK have ever won? Uh, go online and vote now at twitter.com forward slash Matt Jolly on my Twitter page. But what we thought we would do now is, uh, is take a look at some of the best and the worst at photo stunts. What makes a great photo stunt? Is a picture really worth a thousand votes? And how bad is it when things go wrong? Join me now for a trip down memory lane as I speak to the brains behind some of the best and worst stunts of recent years. I've also been delving into the Red Box podcast archive for tales of Dave the Chameleon, who couldn't actually ride his bike, why Boris Johnson was kicked so hard by a press officer, his leg bled, and why did Nick Clegg recreate a pop video in the streets of Gravesend? But first, top hats. Uh, Because if there's one thing that the Labour Party loves doing, it's dressing up to mock posh Tories. Only a few days ago, a group of junior Labour staffers were giving masks of Boris Johnson and Matt Hancock and told to march on Downing Street carrying large brown envelopes of cash. But but one of the best, or at least one of the most memorable, we need to go all the way back to the crew in Nantwich by-election of 2008. Gordon Brown was Prime Minister. It was a big election test for David Cameron as Tory leader. And Labour election strategists decided to dispatch some young, poor staffers dressed in top, hat, top hats and tails to mock what they saw as the posh Tory leader. 13 years on, one of those wearing the top hats is now a Labour MP, Alex Norris. I caught up with him earlier and asked him how it all came about. Oh, well, I mean, I, I, was, I, was, I was young. I just started working for the Labour Party, very keen to catch the eye, as you'd imagine. Uh, I was sent to crew, which I was really excited about, you know, my first ever... Uh, parliamentary by-election, a foot soldier delivering leaflets, knocking on doors, all the things you'd expect. 
And then one evening, um, one of the senior staff said, oh, look, we've got this stunt. We need two young guys to do it. So obviously my hand had shot up before I did um even even really thought about what I well even knew what I was signing up for, uh, and then I was encouraged by someone who's now a senior parliamentary colleague who said, "Oh yes, definitely, Alex will be very good at this." But I might leave him nameless for for now. Um, and, oh come on, yes, come on, course. come on! No, it's, it's only you and me. It's a time to share this opportunity. Who was it who egged you on in the top well, hat? He, he, to be fair, he knows that I blame him. Uh, well, I, ironically enough, from a member of the Shadow Health team, it's my now boss on the Shadow Health team. It's Jonathan Ashworth's fault. Oh, very um, good. And, I, and I'd like the record to show that. Um, <laughs> and of course, in general, it wasn't a very good stunt. There wasn't much elegance or kind of or um, or thought in it. Uh, and then it particularly backfired because I myself uh, went to private school. And I'd like to take this moment to say, cause I got absolutely savage for this as a hypocrite. Um, that, you know, I, I did go to private school. I went on a free place. I come from a, you know, a low-income background, and not, not dissimilar to, to much of my constituents. So I always felt a bit hard done by, by that element to it. But I learned an awful lot, which is, above anything else, before you say yes to something, make sure you know what it is. <laughs> and not, I mean, when you when you say it wasn't the most effective of, of, of studs, obviously uh, the Labour Party went into uh, that uh, by-election with a majority of 7,000, uh, and it came out of it having lost by uh, 7,000. Uh, uh, the Tory candidate getting almost half uh, of, the, of all of the votes cast in the by-election. Do you think these stunts ever work? Can you think of any um, of these sort of uh, things which, which do end up resonating with voters? I, I, I know. In general, I think that the, the, the gimmicks are generally pretty bad. I think people are a bit more, bit more sophisticated than that. I mean, I, I would like to think there are other factors in play um, about that swing, swing um, against us beyond just my own conduct at the by-election. <laughs> um, I, I certainly hope so. Um, so, but yes, I, I think you know, I learned a lot from that about you know, there's there's a time for kind of primary colours in your campaigning to be very, you know, kind of very forceful and. and clear about the message that you're trying to express, but I think you can do it better than dressing up. <laughs> I mean, last week, the Labour Party had another go at this, where people dressed up, I say dressed up, they put on some sort of masks of Boris Johnson and Matt Hancock, all that sort of thing, walking up Whitehall carrying big wads of cash. Um, is this just something that actually just makes sort of party activists, people at Labour HQ, feel like they've done something? I'm not sure it sort of has a massive impact no, on public no, I, attitudes. I, yeah, I mean, I think sometimes it could be, a, you know, a, a creative way of drawing attention to the story. Perhaps we wouldn't be talking about it if they hadn't. Um, I don't think party activists or certainly you know, party staffers look forward to it or, or think, oh, great, I'm going to be dressed up as a chicken today, which is always a favourite of the Tories. <laughs> uh, so I think it's probably quite the opposite. I dare say that if someone like me somewhere comes up with the idea and, and some poor staffer gets press-ganged into doing it. Um, so, yes... I, uh, I, I think I'm probably glad that I'm probably not on the point where I'm likely to be put in a chicken seat. I think that's probably good news. That's the now Labour MP, Alex Norris, there. But talking about the chicken costume, now, what could it possibly... Of course, the Mirror Chicken. It was way back in 1997 when the Mirror first sent out a then-headless chicken to mock a Conservative uh, during the election campaign, and a political tradition was born. Well, one man who knows the chicken suit inside out is Tom McTay, regular on the show. He's now a writer at The Atlantic. But he started out as a junior reporter on the Mirror where the job description demanded putting on the feathered costume? Well, um, I realised I basically didn't know what I was doing as a, as a young journalist. And I was convinced 
by a wise old hand to apply for the Mirror Trainee Scheme, which was one of the best things I'd done. Uh, and part of that is they send you around the country and you you learn, you know, you learn what you're doing, you learn your ropes. Uh, and then you come back to London and they immediately dress you as a chicken and send you <laughs> out to Oxford uh, to go punting on the on the river and to dress in top hat and tails and a chicken suit and to chase George Osborne and David Cameron around London and Ken Clark over Westminster Bridges. And it was, you know, mortifying and petrifying and embarrassing and, and kind of great fun as well as a, as a, young, as a young hack. And I was, I was just lucky or unlucky that it coincided with the 2010 election. So that's, that's how it came about. And I don't, I don't think I ever really fully understood why, what I was doing, why I was dressed as a chicken, <laughs> like what the point was. But, you know, you're just desperate for a job. So you, uh, so you just say, yes, boss, and, and, and off you go. And what happens when you interact with um, politicians? It feels like one of those things that for it to work as a photo opportunity, you know, the chicken appearing behind, you know, a Tory politician out, you know, on the campaign trail, you need the, you sort of need the Tory politician to play along as well. And you just want the photo. But then obviously there's lots of awkwardness of, of essentially you're just standing around in a chicken costume. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I um, it, it's a lot of work for it. It, it felt like for not much, uh, not much end product. Um, so the, there was the. It's all about the photo uh, opportunity, as you say. So in Oxford, you can kind of get away with that just because it's Oxford and it's you know the pretty background and just you on a river in a barge dressed as a chicken is enough. You know, it's funny <laughs> and you go, or you trying to get into the place that. David Cameron got his top hat and tails for the Bullingdon Club. That's that's enough. So I remember chasing George Osborne around the uh, Royal Albert Hall. So we knew he was going there because there was some event. So you, you go down. And then once you get down, you and the photographer... You realise there's, you know, like hundreds of entrances to this to the Royal Albert Hall. So you just have to like pick one side of this circle, and then Osborne, you know, just basically changes plans and goes in a different a different entrance. So you just, you know, it was a completely wasted day. But it's a kind of I remember thinking about Osborne that he was quite nervous about that. Like he, he they they seemed to go out of their way to to avoid any any confrontation with the chicken. And I think if they had. I was just a, a very young and probably not very confident chicken. If he'd just sort of taken my head off and said, well, go on then, ask me the question, I would have been stumped. Cameron, I think, once got a bit frustrated with, with a, one of my colleagues who was also doing the job and took the chicken's head off and asked that very question. And uh, it kind of fizzled out, I think. It wasn't, <laughs> it, you know, it wasn't much of a story. You sort of puncture the, the thing. You know, you just say, well, I'm not playing this game. Anymore. What do you actually want? And, yeah, the poor trainee uh, in the chicken costume. So I, I don't know. I was just doing as I was told. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, there's, there's, you know, you, you're, you're in good company for this because one person who also put on the chicken costume was, was Lee Kane, who then went on to be Director of Communications in Downing Street for Boris Johnson, which is quite an interesting thing from uh, chasing uh, Conservative politicians dressed as a chicken to basically it being your job to make sure nobody gets anywhere near your, your Tory leader. <laughs> Yeah, and and I think that I, I thought about that. I remember going in to see Lee, and he's in his sort of grand office, uh, director of communications in in number ten, and you know it's a huge thing, and there's a PA in there, and there's, um, you know you're overlooking the Downing Street Garden, and on the wall he had a framed um, 
a picture of the mirror chicken uh, front page that the the, the mirror had uh, had used when they realised that Lee Kane had once they'd once employed Lee Kane as the chicken. Uh, so he seemed to take it in good humour. And I, I, I thought about this as well, because Boris is probably the one politician, um, and not the one, actually, a, alongside a few others, who would have had the confidence probably to have dealt with it very well. Like I, My sort of uh, chicken moment was coming up against Ken Clark, who just could not have cared less and just <laughs> sat there as I approached him as he was having a sandwich on the other side of, next to the Thames, I think with a Sun reporter. And he was just so nonchalant. And I said, you know, I was sort of like flapping behind him and trying to get these pictures. Um, and he he just was fine. And then I said, can I sit on your lap? And he said, no, you can't, you cheeky bugger. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and sent me away. Uh, that was Topic Take there talking about being the mirror chicken. Now, uh, what, before that, we heard from Alex Norris, the Labour MP, blaming Jonathan Ashworth uh, many years ago for getting to dress up in top hats. John Ashworth, the Shadow Health Secretary, has been in touch. Ha, ha, how dare he, he says. In fact, I'm pretty sure Alex Norris turned up for work dressed like that every day. So there we are. Uh, John Ashworth insisting it wasn't him. It's funny, isn't it? People always say it wasn't them for the bad ideas. They take credit for the good ones. Still to come, we'll speak to more people behind some truly bad ideas, including Dave the Chameleon, uh, the costume on a bike. Uh, while Boris Johnson's leg ended up bleeding, uh, Min Campbell pointed down a toilet and Nick Clegg in a Carly Rae Jepsen video. We'll do all that next. Across the UK, on DAB, online and on your smart speaker, Matt Chorley on Times Radio. Yeah, we're doing the World Cup of political photo stunts all morning. In the semi-finals, we've got about half an hour left on this. The Edstone is beating uh, Jeremy Corbyn sitting on the floor of a train in semi-final number one. And Alex Salmond is current. Alex Salmond Solero is currently beating Change UK in Nando's. Change UK not winning. Who'd have thought? You go online, Matt Shirley on uh, Twitter uh, to vote in those right now. But let's talk about one of my favourite ever uh, political stunts, Dave the Chameleon. So this was uh, <laughs> this was uh, some time ago. Theo Bertram, who was a Labour strategist, appeared on the Times Red Box podcast and told me about how uh, Labour's then obsession with polling gave birth to Dave the Chameleon. Upon David Cameron when he first became when he first became leader of the opposition and we had done the kind of focus groups and polling one of the things that came back was it really cut through that moment when he cycled into parliament but his bags were brought by a chauffeur driving along behind him it was a classic example of bad story with an image that stuck in people's minds and the other thing that they felt about him was that they didn't really trust him they felt he was a chameleon that was the animal they described in these focus groups you know when the kind of classic thing a focus group says is tell us what kind of animal this person is and chameleon came back once upon a time there was a little blue egg it didn't do very much it was after all just an egg but then one day a tiny crack appeared and david the chameleon burst out into the big wide world we wanted to double down on that and we ended up with a thing where we're like, well, these are the two things. We had a man in a David Chameleon blue lizard costume 
who was going to cycle on a bike and we had a photo <laughs> op for this. And we had this elaborate suit made, which of course didn't change colour. So the whole point of it being a chameleon was lost. It was just a big blue. He was just a true blue lizard. It was just a big blue lizard. <laughs> and um, we put a bicycle helmet on him. But then he, when he got on the bike, he obviously couldn't cycle the bike because <laughs> he couldn't see and he couldn't balance wearing a large. So the bike was kind of to one side and then he was standing there with this holding uh, you know, with this helmet on and it was only when the the photographers were there and i could see them kind of one asking the other like what is this about <laughs> what is the blue lizard thing that i kind of realized we we've we've completely gone too far here this is totally wrong i mean that wasn't the worst of it at one point we had an actual live chameleon in the office that we had rented from someone on a daily basis and it was just when we were experimenting with cool new things to do online one of the agencies that we'd worked with said you should have a live video video of a chameleon people love watching cute animals this will go down storm on social media so in the office we had a video camera just filming a chameleon <laughs> in, in a glass <laughs> box and after the after the day of the chameleon thing where like all the children's like what the hell is this we came i came back and i was like this, this, this has to go you know this this but yeah it can get ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> to learn more about this cunning little chameleon, visit DaveTheChameleon.com. Then tune in next Thursday to BBC One at 6.55pm or to ITV or BBC Two at 6.25pm to see more of Dave's adventures. I'm not sure if that website is still live, if you go to that, but needless to say, it was not an absolute triumph for the Labour Party. Well, even, never mind costumes, even the most basic photo opportunity can go wrong. Just a walkabout, and lots of politicians were doing this week, a walkabout can be tricky. This was Katy Perry, who was Boris Johnson's press officer when he was running to be mayor, describing how they were out and about one day and she could see trouble ahead. Well, I had a moment that could have gone wrong with Boris uh, on the election campaign when we were in Romford Market, and uh, all these snappers were running towards me at, at pace, and uh, I looked around and I said, can we move on now, please? He said, oh, hold on a minute. He doesn't like being told what to do like that, you know. In the end, I kicked him with my shin, with my, my heel, <laughs> so good that he drew blood. Um, he later said to me, don't ever do that again. <laughs> but um, he said, well, ouch, and I said, just move now. And we moved away, and uh, the snappers came, came running forward and said, you know, you, uh, you did really well there. But we, we got away with not being on the front page of the Times the following day with a picture of Boris underneath erotic underwear still. Well, there they are. That's what happens when a, when a walkabout goes wrong. That didn't actually make the World Cup. One that did, which I included and in, crashed out in the first round, is one of my favourites uh, of the sort of the standard photo op comes from back in 2007. This is James McGrory, a former Lib Dem spin doctor, telling the story of what I call simply Ming Campbell pointing down a toilet. It was a Lib Dem conference, and he was looking at... It was either a caravan or a motorboat. No, it was an eco-home. It was an eco-home, that's an right. An eco-home in Brighton. And obviously, when you go to an eco-home, you, you have a look around. I mean, not very big, so there's only so much to, to look at. And all the snappers uh, who were there were shouting, point at the toilet, Ming. <laughs> and obviously he did, and all the headlines the next day were Lib Dem chances down the swanee. It was uh, <laughs> it was an absolute gift to headline writers. And what was amazing, I remember speaking to photographers afterwards and said... Uh, what were they thinking? And they said, I don't know. And it was the only room they took us in to take photos. <laughs> and it was in this sort of eco-toilet, which had... And there were lots of questions about Ming's age. And it had sort of, like, disability bars on the walls with a picture of him pointing down the toilet. I mean, his images go. It was a... <laughs> it was a It was a, it it was was a, a particular cracker.
There we are. That was James McGorry telling the story of Mingat Campbell pointing down the toilet. The Lib Dems often try much harder when it comes to... Fo- That's just the sound of a toilet filling up. Uh, the Lib Dems often try much harder with photo opportunities. The hope of getting noticed. Willie Rennie, in particular, is the party leader in Scotland. But, I mean, loves them. Regularly seen with animals, big props or costumes are often all three. Uh, Willie Rennie, with some pigs mating behind him in an interview, uh, was uh, one of the early casualties of the uh, vote online, the World Cup. In the 2015 election campaign, Nick Clegg was seen posing with a three-legged hedgehog, small, prickly, endangered and prone to going round in circles. The Lib Dems never managed to bounce back. Maybe they should finally release one of the great unseen political stunts. Now, four years ago, I spoke to the former Lib Dem uh, press chief, James Holt, about the video that we all want to see. You were blamed (laughs) or uh, accused of being responsible for the decision to get Nick Clegg to record a scene-by-scene recreation of the music video of Carly Rae Jepsen's... What was the song? (laughs) Oh, no, it was I Really, Really Like You. I Really, Really Like You. Um, <laughs> and the original music video stars Tom Hanks. Yes, it does. Yes. What was going through your mind when you thought, let's get <laughs> Nick Clegg, de- at that point, Deputy Prime yes, Minister, was. running for um, re-election, to get him to walk through the streets of... <laughs> Gravesend. Gravesend. Yeah. High-fiving. Yes. Dancing girls. Yeah. yeah. And with, there was a ping pong bat. There was we did a scene in a hotel room. Yeah, the whole whole shebang. Why? Um, I like to think of it now probably as my my Edstone moment, except that I had colleagues that stopped me from uh, making it public. Uh, but... We'd love we'd love that to be public. Yeah, I know, I know <laughs> that you would. <laughs> I know that you would. How how much has Nick Clegg offered to pay you to make sure that never comes out? Uh, he wouldn't need to, you know. I am um, your loyalty stuff. I am um, totally. And talk, you know, when we've talked about stuff leaking out and all the rest of it, this uh, once again we managed to keep this entirely quiet until Nick mentioned it in front of you. And then I put it in the newspaper. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it is so good. Look it up. Uh, Nick Clay, Carly Rae Jepsen. The video. It's a Tom Hanks video which he recreated scene by scene. Now James Holt there describing it as his own Ed Stone moment. We couldn't possibly. Uh, talk about um, TV uh, uh, political stunts gone wrong without discussing the Edstone, which is currently, uh, I think it might end up winning, actually. Anyway, this was Stuart Wood, now Lawwood, of course. He was in Ed Miliband's shadow cabinet and he was there for the Edstone. Well, my, my involvement was standing at the side of in Hastings watching it get unveiled with the, with the guy who sculpted it standing next to me saying, don't you think it's a good bit of work? And I was saying, it's a you know, great bit of sculpture. And then just Which thinking... just goes to show that politicians will lie when needed. <laughs> 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 and do you know where it is now? I have no idea where the headstone is now, no. Well, if you, if you do know where the headstone is, get in touch, 8722, start your message with the word Times. Uh, and, uh, yeah, that would be lovely to find. Um, uh, now, uh, one of the great... Rarely remembered stunts that we're going to talk about. You need to go right back to the turn of the century. Imagine it. William Hager's Conservative leader. The party needed something eye-catching at party conference. Our very own Daniel Finkelstein picks up the story. When I was working for Michael Ancrum as the chairman of the Conservative Party, it was decided, I think rather foolishly, we ought to try to distract attention from fringe meetings by holding, uh, as a party, our own fringe meetings. So... Uh, a proposal was made that we ought to do a number of things, one of which was going to be a bonfire of regulations to be held on the beach uh, or, or, or on the seafront in Bournemouth. 
Uh, and I, I did uh, start by saying that it was a little bit um, difficult because we hadn't actually got any regulations that we decided that we wanted to uh, <laughs> to get rid of. So what would people actually put on this bonfire regulations? At which point someone else suggested people could bring regulations and throw them on the fire. I, I said, I, I don't know about anyone else, but normally when I come to conference, I leave my regulations at home. Um, so <clears throat> I didn't think that idea was going to work. At, w- at which point someone chipped in and said uh, that we'd have to make sure people had something for lunch while this bonfire regulations were go- going on. And my colleague Rick and I... Uh, suggested we have a, a barbecue of regulations. <laughs> we, we proceeded with this idea despite my protests and um, uh, we only had to abandon it in the end because it turned out that having a bonfire of any sort was actually against regulations. <laughs> uh, so we couldn't have a bonfire of regulations. Um, instead of which it was decided that what we would do is have a dustbin of regulations. And the Shadow Secretary of State for uh, Education and the Deputy Shadow of State, the Secretary of State for Education, um, would hurl the only regulation that we had for certain that we definitely wanted to get rid of, which was something called the Education Plan of Plans, into a dustbin that would be held by a member of the Conservative Research Department and would also launch 100 balloons with the Education Plan of Plans off into the sea from the seafront at Bournemouth. Well, it was an extremely windy day uh, in which the uh, two started this uh, extraordinary event. Uh, they tried hurling the um, uh, the uh, regulation into the bin. I think just about managed to hit the moving target and then set these balloons off. Um, and uh, it's important at this point that I tell you that the Shadow Secretary of State for Education at that time was Theresa May and her deputy was John Burke. Um, <laughs> and uh, picture it, the scene, if you like, of the two of them hurling these balloons into the wind, but of course, it being very windy, it blew back. Uh, and the two of them then ended up batting away these uh, balloons until I could finally uh, get rid of them. This, I didn't think, assisted either our attempt to uh, reduce the number of fringe pieces of causing trouble or the amount of uh, red tape and regulation. And I think it possibly uh, should win the prize as the worst ever political stunt. I've been unable to find a picture of that stunt. It may all just be entirely be in Danny's imagination. Loads of you have been getting in touch about uh, political stunts. If you want to vote in the World Cup, go to twitter.com forward slash Matt Shirley. I think you can even vote if you're not on Twitter. So I know some of you have been in touch saying how do you do it. Twitter.com forward slash Matt Shirley. You can vote right now in the, in the uh, semi-final. Peter has found an amazing picture of Margaret Thatcher being bonked on the head by Timmy Mallet, which is particularly good. Uh, Paul says, surely the worst political photo what was Chamberlain's piece in our time, piece of paper. Uh, Nick says, how about uh, Blair and Brown with the, uh, with the ice cream cornets, which is very good. Nigel says he was in Tory H... Nigel Fletcher, this is, says he was in Tory HQ when the Labour Party did the Dave the Chameleon stunt. Uh, and he showed David Cameron a leaflet of Dave the Comedian. He laughed heartily and took it home, saying his daughter was a big fan of the character. That was basically part of the problem. Made David Cameron seem very cute. Uh, but one uh, political stunt that lives long in the memory, uh, it's all to do with th- things that politicians wear. Let's talk about William Hague's hat, his baseball cap, worn famously on a log f- flume. Uh, well, last year I asked William Hague what he would say if anyone else said they were thinking of wearing a baseball cap in public. Well, I'd say don't do it. Absolutely, I'd say don't do it. Although I would say that, um, <laughs> I would say these things, 
they become part of the narrative later, you know, after the event. And again, this can happen in any job, of course, that um, in, a, in any public job, that if it starts not to go well, then whatever photo call you did in the past suddenly starts to look very embarrassing, or, or many of them can do. You have to try and anticipate that and avoid those situations. Don't worry about grabbing publicity or the photo each day. You just have to live with the frustration that you're not always in the media, that you can't always command attention. Don't do anything unwise to try and grab that attention, I think is the, the uh, moral of that particular episode. Well, that's it for this episode of Red Box. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. Maybe even leave us a rating because it helps with the mumbo-jumbo charts. We release an episode every day, Monday to Thursday, featuring the best bits of my Times Radio show. You can listen to the whole thing, uh, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. It's available on DAB, online, via Smart Speaker or on the Times Radio app. If you want to read more about all of the stories we've been discussing, then go to times.radio forward slash subscribe. 